Hey, this is Dean Kane, and you're watching Good Life, and so am I. Welcome to Good Life. I'm Dean Wilson. So glad you've joined us. Wherever you are, we, we welcome you. If you're at goodlifetelevision.org, um, all around the world, or if you're in Santa Barbara, California, watching on TV Santa Barbara, we, we're so glad you're with us. You can also find us at all the social media platforms, and a lot of you are finding us at our podcast, which all these interviews are turned into podcast episodes. So you can find us there at Good Life Conversations, Good Life Conversations, anywhere where you get your podcast. So many great people, uh, so many great stories now at goodlifetelevision.org, and we've got a great guy today with us. Uh, I'm so pleased to welcome Dean Kane to the program. Welcome. Dean Wilson, thank you for having me, sir. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Yeah. There's know, not many deans. There's not, there's, there needs to be more deans, just like there needs to be more redheads. <laughs> I've heard well, deans, for sure. Redheads, I'm a, <laughs> I've I'm heard kidding, redheads are going kidding. extinct. But, <laughs> yeah, so I did my part by naming my son Dean Jr., you have a middle name of your son. My son, Dean. middle middle name. Yeah. He got my father's, Christopher. So my, my father's name. It was a way to honor my father who adopted me when I was four. Right. So yeah, But the Dean, it's very traditional because his mom's from Spain, that the firstborn son gets the father's name as the middle name. So I got that in there. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so I, my, my, my son goes by DJ. He's Dean Jr. Oh, But nice. every once in a while, I hear his baseball teammates like I did yesterday in the dugout yelling. Let's go, Dean, and it kind of wakes him up because he's always DJ. But that's a it's it's funny how that is though. I, like, there's not many deans, so anytime I'm on set and there's another dean, oh, it's a problem. Because right. then I, you're Dean, I, my head sw right. swivels right. around, so we have to come up with. You know what name. Dean means, right? I do not. You don't know the name. No. Okay, we were talking about this learn the, me. And on the car <laughs> on the car drive down here today, we were talking about. It. I said, I wonder if he knows what Dean means, chief or leader. All right, mom. Thank you. <laughs> Really? Here we are. I love we that. We can wrap the program. And scene. <laughs> Chief that's, or leader. That's great. That's, what, that's it. Yeah. So that's us. All right. Dean and Dean. I'm going to drink so, my coffee to that. So if you don't know Dean Kane, actor, producer, he's, he's now, of course, directing. We're going to talk about that. He's a writer. He's um, born in Mount Clemens, Michigan, but, but really raised in Malibu, Santa Monica High School. So first of all, I have to ask, what in the world was Charlie Sheen like in high school? <laughs> Charlie was a really nice guy. He was uh, I played baseball with Charlie for about 11 years. Did um, you really? Yeah, good good baseball player, um, funny guy, quiet, reserved, hadn't found the tiger's blood or those things yet. So <laughs> he uh, was a really a really a kind of a quiet, reserved kid with a with a great sense of humor. Oh, and yeah. so uh, it wasn't until just before he graduated high school where things started to turn a little more dynamic, shall we say. Right. Uh, and then, you know, he's a phenomenal actor, and he's just, yeah. he is, uh, I mean, my dad hired him and put him in Young Guns. My dad's a director. And, right, right. Um, He had all those kids in Young Guns that I grew up with, which was great. Uh, but Charlie was, uh, he was a quiet, reserved kid. If you saw Charlie in elementary school or junior high school compared to the Charlie Sheen that the world knows now, you wouldn't they recognize did. It's Jekyll and Hyde. So you grew up in this world, this Malibu, Santa Monica, kind of Rob Lowe, the, Dean Kane, Charlie Sheen. What an interesting time. I mean, what, what was it like? Well, it's funny because it didn't seem special. It just seemed like, I, you know, I grew up in, in, in Paradise Cove, which is actually a trailer park. When people were like, oh, you grew up in Malibu. I, I was like, I grew up in a trailer park. Of course, those trailers now sell for a 1.7 million. <laughs> right. and but it's not that they're very nice. It's the, the three most important uh, words in real estate. Location, location, location. Right. You know, and it, it's just beautiful. I thought that everybody... Um, 
we, you know, we would go outside when after I had breakfast, and we'd be out there playing until it got dark. We knew we had to be home right at dark. I mean, it's so cliche to say it, but that's how it was. But we'd be able to walk to the beach. We'd be able to do all kinds of stuff. And it was just this group of kids that were running around. It wasn't as though we felt special or privileged. All of our parents were involved in our lives. It, it's different than the Malibu now, unfortunately, because I find there are a lot of folks who were in Malibu and who aren't great parents, and they're not with their kids all the time, and they're, you know, it's a different thing. And I, and I, I, I lament that. That's a, that's a real bummer because I'm a, Everything that I do, I'm a father first, yeah. and 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 I was taught that through my own father, who, like I said, adopted me when I was four. And so, um, my family was always together. We were always there and together. And all these kids, I, we just thought it was regular that you know our families worked in film. I didn't think that was anything special, other than you know that we'd go do this. I mean, I was in these little movies with my dad. He'd make me go, okay, Dean, you stand here and you say this. I was like, I don't want to say that. And he'd be like, all right, who, who wants to say it? And Chris Penn's like, I'll say it. And I was like, hmm. Okay, and they took my line. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Um, Chris has passed, rest in peace. Um, but, you know, um, it was just a regular life. I didn't think anything was special about it. We just thought this is great fun, and we, you know, just had a, I had a wonderful, idyllic childhood, but it wasn't until right when I was getting to college time that some of these guys started doing films and acting and, and becoming famous. Sean Penn doing Fast Times at Ridgemont High. You know, Jeff Spicoli. I was like, well, I remember when I heard Sean was taking acting classes. I was like... That's so weird. Like I just, it's. It, I didn't see us transitioning into the sort of the adult world because we had this little bubble in Malibu that we lived in, and everything was, you know, wonderful. Um, so it wasn't until that happened, until and then he did that. And then Rob Lowe started to act and do things, and I was like, that's interesting. But I'm going off to Princeton, and I'm going to play football, and then I'm going to go to the NFL. That was my that was thought process. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know that you like set a Princeton record for interceptions in a season. So I, you weren't just playing for I me. Mean, you were good. No, I, I would like to think I was. I, I call myself very good. Um, <laughs> uh, I set not just Princeton records. I set two NCAA records. So that still stand today. Actually, um, I set several um, I, in my. So when I got to Princeton, you know, growing up in Malibu, California, going to Princeton to me was like a, a whole other world, and it really was. I wasn't prepared for the academics when I got there. As, as, as easy as academics were for me in, in Malibu schools and in Santa Monica High School, um, and they were easy, and I took a lot of AP courses and things like that, uh, it was easy for me. When I got to Princeton, I, you know, I took my first exam. I got an 86 on it. I was like, sweet, C minus? I was like, what is that? 86? Like, well, you didn't do the extra credit, and everybody else did, and like, we grade on a curve. And 86 is a C minus. And I was like, I am in trouble here, folks. <laughs> uh, but by the time I was a senior, uh, I had figured it out and, and caught up. And it, then it was actually, got, that got easy for me. But I, I, I couldn't have ever imagined that I was going to go to school on the East Coast and have the kind of experience that I had. I got lost in that. Where was, was it? Oh, football. Um, see, that's what happens with all that football. <laughs> no. Um, I, so I got there and, and I was able to, um, as a freshman, you couldn't, play varsity, so you had to play a freshman season. So I was only able to have three seasons um, as a varsity player, as, as all of our, my classmates as well. And um, because of that, um, I ended up having 22 interceptions in 30 games. We only played 10 games a season. That's a per game average still for, uh, for football championship subdivision, FCS. Um, 1AA is what it used to be. That, that still holds for career per game average. And then my senior year in 10 games, I had uh, 12 interceptions, which was 
at the time the most any player ever had in college football, regardless of the number of games. But we only played 10 games at Princeton. That's all they still play. We don't get to play postseason. Some of these schools are playing 14 games. Right, right. And that's just not fair for the stats, right, right. although my per-game average is still holding 900 years after I graduated. So, yes. <laughs> what, were you free safety? Or? Free safety. So you could read. You must have had an ability to read. Yeah, I was a zone guy. I, I didn't like to lock up in man cover. I played corner my sophomore year. I had five interceptions at corner. But, um, I, you know, the corners... Um, that Corners was not a natural. Tough. It's a just real athletic. You just have to be super fast, and yeah. and it really is man coverage all the time. It really, kind of is uh, free safety. I was the sort of the quarterback of the defense. I could right. see all the flow, read everything. I might not have been the fastest person uh, to play safety in the NFL or certainly even in college, but I'll be there where I'm supposed to be two steps ahead of you. That's the way. I, just because I knew every play, every flow, everything to look for, and and uh, I had to adjust when I got to the NFL because. Things happen a lot faster. Yeah, I was going to say. So you get to you get Buffalo Bills. You get there and you and you you blow your knee out. So that was your plan. So all yeah. of a sudden you're finding yourself in a reset position here. Take us back to that time. Well, it helps being young and kind of stupid as well because I figured, okay, my my injury wasn't horrible. It was a I, I tore my lateral meniscus completely. That cartilage was gone, and uh, the problem I had was there. In, in your, your femoral head, there's a, it's all covered in cartilage. I blew a piece of bone off of that, a big piece of bone. So I had a bone-on-bone -bone issue, and they did this microfracture surgery, and I thought it was going to be fine, and I would just come back. I actually, it happened three days before the first preseason game against Houston. And I remember sort of politicking, like, let me just play Houston. Let me just play against Houston. Because I knew once I got on the field, um, that's where my, I'd make my bones. Because I'm really comfortable. I was, was really comfortable on the field. Give me the game time situation. And I will be that player who just ends up in the right place at the right time when the ball gets fumbled. And so that's that's how I'd made my my bones all through my career. And um, that didn't happen. They said, no. I remember it was a drug testing day because you have to go in as, as a and, and drug test for the league. Um, because I was a rookie, my drug test time was like 6.30 in the morning. I remember Bruce Smith was coming in at 2 p.m. and stuff like that. I was like, that's not fair. They're like, shut up, rookie. Okay. Um, and so I came in, and, and we had a, we'd had a day off from camp. I'd been in camp for weeks. And, and then uh, the trainer said, he goes, hey, how's, that, how's that knee feeling, Kane? I go, actually, good. It's the best it's felt. Um, you know, and he looked at it. He goes, I don't know. You better go see the doctor. And I was like, uh-oh. It was literally, you could, dun, dun, it, was, it was over at that point. They had made their decision that I was going to be um, operated on and then gone and then brought back the next season if nobody claimed me off waivers. So I didn't think I was done. Uh, I sat on the team all the way until uh, just before playoffs, and they cut me uh, off of injured reserve, which is against the collective bargaining agreement. I sued them. I won. But I was, a, I was once you do that, you're gone from the league. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, the... The thing for me, it's a bummer because I was a rookie, excuse me, with Thurman Thomas. We had like six Hall of Famers on the team. Thurman Thomas, Bruce Smith, Jim Kelly, uh, Andre Reed, Coach Marv Levy. I mean, there's so many great players. Cornelius Bennett. Uh, it, it was crazy, and it was a great time to be there, and I really fit in, and I really thought this would be wonderful. If I played five years, I'd have seen four Super Bowls. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I always joke, you know, well, I don't joke. I say... You like to believe as an athlete that you could have made a difference, right. <laughs> and they would have won one of those Super Bowls. Right. And I said that once to, uh, to as you even said maybe I wrong lined up in the wrong spot and somehow got the lucky bounce. And I said that to a sports writer in Buffalo, and then the headline was Kane thinks he could have changed Buffalo's thing. I was like, <laughs> No, I didn't say that. Uh, but um, it was a. Uh, I, I thought I'd come back, and I, I it just the, the the 
injury never got to that place. Um, the, the surgery took and did well, but it didn't do well enough. And um, so I had to retire. And that was weird. I was 22 years old. The two things I always did well, schoolwork and, and, and play sports. I mean, I played three sports in college. I played football. Um, I, play, I ran track. And then I captained the volleyball team. You know, so um, I was, and we were, Princeton's a good volleyball team, believe it or not. Um, which is also my show, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they really are a good volleyball team, and so I was always doing athletics in school. So all of a sudden, the two things that I did best were just done. Yeah. It's finished. I'm 22 years old. I was like, okay, here we go, start again, and it's really humbling. Yeah. It's really humbling. And um, then I just put my nose to the grindstone and started going on auditions as an actor, uh, commercial auditions and things like that, taking acting classes, which I really never liked very much because um, I found them to be odd. You know, give me an emotion and a body movement. That's kind of the things you'd be doing. I'm like, this really is stupid. Um, you know, ooh, whatever. So that'd be the things you're doing. I was like, what am I doing here? Um, and then I, I just started to be myself, and I started getting more acting jobs, and that was wonderful and great. But, I mean, it would be, okay, you're doing a commercial audition. Okay, you, uh, these four guys, come on inside. Okay, guys, take off your shirts and eat Doritos and pretend you're dancing at a party having a good time. We're all like, eh, okay. <laughs> Me and three other guys just eating Doritos, and that's 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 how the commercial auditions went. It was very humbling, but that's where you know. I mean, Brad Pitt, you know, was it? I think the Chick Fil A chicken or something like that, or something. You know, that's 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 what happens when you're young and you're wanting to work. You take those jobs, you put your ego aside, and you work your way up. And that's what I did. And it, it took a, a couple of years, and and then I got, then I finally hit the role of Superman, and that was the beginning of all this madness. What a journey. You, yeah. you mentioned your adopted dad. So he was, he was like born and raised in South Dakota or something. Yeah. I mean, he was like a real cowboy. Oh, yeah. My dad was a real, real cowboy. He was, uh, he, he was uh, raised in uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota um, on a farm. I mean, he was so happy to go away to college because he was so sick of having to get up in the morning and milk the cows and feed the chickens and get out there. And South Dakota gets bone-chilling cold. I mean, right. it's... It's cold out there. So, um, and he used, I think he had a motorcycle, rode a bike or something. You know, he, was, he tells me the stories, you know, uphill both ways right. in the snow and right. all that stuff. But um, he, so he, he also rode, he was a real cowboy. He rode bulls in the rodeos and things like that. So he came out to Hollywood to be a singer and he sang with Andy Williams and all kinds of people and he cut a record. You cut a record, Dad. Uh, and I found that record and I put it on a CD, of course. Um, for the kids out there, the CD is what we used to use to do before it was digital. It was, uh, but I, I gave it to everybody, and you know, uh, we we still play his songs. I have it on my, you know, on my on my phone now. I can play the songs he sang. But he really turned in. He started as an actor, was do, doing some things, and um, he met my mom. They fell in love, and uh, right away, I was like, I guess for me, immediately, I was calling him dad. Yeah, you know, which is a little. You're dating a single mom with uh, two kids, and the one kid starts calling you dad. I mean, that's pretty quick. Uh, maybe I put the pressure on him. But he's the greatest influence in my life, and had he not come in to my life, uh, I know that my life would be a whole different ball of yeah, wax. Because I was going to say, you mentioned that that in terms of your values. I mean, this was he was he was a real cowboy. I mean, in terms of kind of that America, you know, rugged individualism, figure it out. I mean, a lot of that that was instilled in you came from him, didn't 100%. it? hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. My other side of the family was military. So I was born on a military air base, uh, Selfridge Air Force Base. But, and that was also a lot of hard work and grit. But my dad, you know, he had, I always call it farm, farmer advice. He always gives farmer advice. And we write together and do things together. And he starts writing dialogue sometime. And he's like, he, 
he writes a dialogue like, uh, uh, there's a, a young man was going to see his, his grandmother to get some advice over something, He's, and she doesn't talk about it. She goes, you know that tree over there is, you know, it's looking, you know, uh, a little peaked there. It's because the roots aren't strong. So if the roots aren't strong, and it gets into that sort of, that's how, and I'm like, Dad, you write this stuff. He's like, I live this stuff. I'm like, okay. <laughs> but he gave that advice, that silly farmer advice to me my whole life. And it, you know, I look at the times where I really needed him, and he was there every time. Even at Princeton. I almost left Princeton my sophomore year. Uh, I had a coach who I love now but hated then, Steve Verbit. If you're out there, Verbs. And we're still great friends. He's still at Princeton. He's the longest-serving coach in Ivy League history. But um, he was up my tail like nobody had ever been, and I was so sick of it. And I, at Princeton, you weren't treated uh, very special because you were an athlete. It was actually the opposite. I remember I had to miss a Friday class because we were traveling to go play Dartmouth. And it's a long way from, to, from Princeton, New Jersey, to Hanover, New Hampshire. It's a you know, nine-hour bus ride and so whatever. So we had to leave. That's part of playing a sport. And I came back, and he had said something to me about, you know, got up my tail about missing class. I said, but I don't have a choice to miss the class and whatever. Um, and then I went, I would work out in the summertime at UCLA with Troy Aikman and Flipper Anderson and Ken Norton Jr., all these guys that were phenomenal, Charles Arbuckle, these great ball players, all who went to the NFL. And uh, they were treated like kings. Like, they didn't do anything. I'm like, what? Why do I go to a place that treats me like a Neanderthal, you know, and 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 is angry because I miss a you know a class? And um, but I know why now. I mean, it was just such a, a incredible um, university, incredible uh, education that I received, both on and off the field and in and out of the classroom. I mean, that you really because everybody lives on the class, you live on 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 the campus. It's a residential campus, so you know, you're around everybody all the time. I look back at the people that I went to school with, guys, you know, if you'd have told me that someone in school was, when I was a sophomore, would change the way commerce is done, I would like, what, what, what do you mean? It's impossible, everything's already been done. But Jeff Bezos was, you know, he was two years ahead of me at Princeton. Michelle Obama was two years ahead of me at Princeton. You know, these things, and all these people um, end up doing wonderful things in life, and it's great, that's one of the things that's great about going to university like Princeton is now, these people who you were friends with through college and did stupid things with are now people running, you know, billion-dollar companies and 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 they're heads of state and whatever it happens. To, it's it's it's, it's yeah. a, an incredible. That's one of the best reasons to go to a school like that. Yeah, fatherhood's been the biggest deal to you greatest in your life, life, isn't it? Yeah. So I was watching an interview with you where you were talking about. And I relate to this a little bit, but you you were saying your son does has done jujitsu. Oh, yeah. He was a fighter, yes. and and at one time he was kind of totally tired, beaten up, and ends up coming back in a fight. And you were saying that it was like this swell of, what's fatherhood been like for you? Fatherhood's the greatest journey I've ever been on, ever, bar none. Uh, you look at phases of your life. I look at, I was in college for these years. I was doing this, Superman for these years. I was, But I can't imagine my life without that kid in it. My son, Christopher, he came in, and I was a single father, so I raised him. Um, I shared custody with his mom until he was nine, and then I had full custody from there on. And he is just my favorite person. The, it's the most trying, most testing thing you've ever done. Um, I had to learn so many things. He taught me so many things uh, along the way. Patience, and um, he's just a very different guy than me. He hates team sports. He, just, he never liked team sports. I loved team sports. Individual sports were harder, but he was a, I wrestled. Um, so I was wrestling with him a lot as a kid, and he was very good at that. He didn't like football. He didn't like the big hits and things like that, which I loved. Um, so I said, you know, why don't you get into jujitsu? And he trained um, 
jiu-jitsu with some uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu artists and he, he was phenomenal and he was very good at it. And, um, but I just didn't know if he ever had that lion's heart, you know, and, and he was scared to compete. He was a very much of an introvert, loved his video games. So I tried to teach him everything I could um, and then I knew we were gonna go down to, down to San Diego and, um, and have a, uh, um, a tournament. And he was 16 at the time, I think. And uh, he was going in there to fight guys who were 35, you know, men's strength, not kids' strength. And he, he did a, two different divisions. So he ended up having five or six fights that day. And he had never fought in a tournament before. And I just didn't know how he was gonna react. And uh, he was so tired in between. I had him back in my truck, like rubbing his legs out, trying to get his, you know, his calves going, his hands, things, feed him. So he, he was just laying there asleep. He took a nap a few times. And then he finally gets in the final match. And unfortunately, the coaches weren't able to go down there. So I had to coach him and I don't know how to coach jujitsu. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Uh, and so I'm trying to yell things to him, but he was getting stacked up. And I thought, he's, this kid is just done. He's just, I, he has no more, he can't, he can't even go. He kept going, kept going. And then he, he likes to fight from his back. He jumps guard and does a lot of crazy things with his legs. And then all of a sudden, he locked it in. Ah. <laughs> Did it. Uh, that's so beautiful. I love it, it kills me because I knew at that moment, you know, he had that lion's heart, you know. Yeah. And, ah. It's in there. Ah. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's, it, I, I love that. It, it, sports get me. I'm a big, yeah. I'm a big baby for sports. Yeah. And because of I, you, what it takes physically and mentally to get to a place like that and then overcome it is incredible. Yeah. A lot of people don't know you're a reserve police officer. Yes, sir. So last night I was telling my wife this. And I'm actually a full sheriff's deputy, uh, full, in Frederick County, Virginia as well. So Are you? I'm, so I'm, Idaho and yep. Virginia? Yeah, I was telling my wife this last night. She's like, so imagine a scenario where somebody gets arrested by Superman. <laughs> Mom, I got arrested by Superman. Yes. If, and listen, <laughs> if I can de-escalate the situation and because of that have a conversation with them and put the cuffs on nicely, that's a good thing. Right. That's a good thing. It's just I don't want it to go the other way where they're like, can these bullets really bounce off you? And I'm like, no, 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 absolutely right. not. But if it disarms the situation and sort of de-escalates it, that's great. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I've been doing this for about five or six, six years now. That's interesting. I have huge respect for our law enforcement yeah. uh, men and women, and it's been a really tough, tough trying time um, for these wonderful sheepdogs. You know, these are people who are there to protect and serve. Of course, there are bad apples within any organization. Right. And in this room right now, there's probably one. <laughs> um, but uh, it's just, it's just, it's been unfortunate the way that things have gone. This whole defund the police movement. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the number one things you need in any sort of uh, civilized society is law and order. Yeah. And you're always going to need a police force. Right. And hopefully those police forces, both of the forces that I'm on, are really engaged in the community and they're really tight with the community and uh, super friendly. And that's part of, that's really the bigger part of my job as an officer is to, to keep that community engagement up and, and, and represent the police force in a positive way, in a friendly way. Um, I'll be going back to Virginia to, to, to be the marshal of a couple parades and I'll be doing it with my fellow officers and that'll be fun. That's happening in a, you know, at the end of the month. And um, it's just, it's just a, it's a wonderful thing. But yeah, listen, if they told me to put the cuffs on you, I'd have to put the cuffs on you. Uh, <laughs> so so I, I was thinking about this. So 1993, so the, the whole Lois and Clark thing happens. So you're cruising along, and I know you did Beverly Hills 902, and oh, you're doing a few things, but then this, what's it like? Like, I mean, you don't know it's going to hit. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like it's like, I mean, I don't know. 
I don't know anything, but <laughs> but I, I feel like it's kind of like that means you really do know stuff. When like, you realize like, that you don't know I, I anything. I don't know very much. It means that you know you're, a lot. You're getting everything right now that, <laughs> that I got. <laughs> so this is a big one. But I mean, it's like a like a roulette, to like a craps table or something. I'm going to throw the my twenty bucks on the hard eight, and you know we'll see if it hits. Like it feels like that. I mean, cause, so 1993. Have, so, I mean, this show goes from a, to a place where you're averaging 15 million viewers an episode. I mean, this was a but you don't know that going in. I mean, no. you just think, okay, I'll do this, and it sounds fun. I mean, I, walk us through, like, and all of a sudden, you, what was the point where you were like, wow, this is hitting? Uh, you know, it was a couple of years into it, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll explain the process. So when, it first, when I first heard about it, I was like, a live-action Superman, eh, I don't think they can pull it off in television, and I was concerned. But um, uh, it was, it, I was getting a lot of scripts at that point in time, because suddenly... Something had clicked and it was the right time for me. And I knew that was the case, but my agent was like, this is this six on the air. This six episodes on the air, they're gonna make six, it's going on the air, uh, you know, look at it. And, and I read the script and I was like, oh, this is different than I thought. The, well, I, I was picturing the Christopher Reeve Superman and um, I just didn't think we could pull off the special effects. But then I read the script and I said, I understand this guy. I get this guy. And I came in and I read for it and uh, I had read the script the night before. Because back in that day, so you had to go pick up the script and then go back, you know, and um, they couldn't email it because that didn't exist. Right. Uh, and, and so um, I came in, I was the first person the producer saw. All kinds of, everybody in Hollywood was going up for the role, I guess, but I went in there as the first person. I was very relaxed because I, it felt comfortable to me. Like I knew the character in my heart. And uh, I just said, I think I might have a different take on this. It was a guy named Robert Butler, Deborah Joy Levine, who, who um, wrote it and... Uh, was the exec producer, but Robert Butler is, was known as, he was the director, but he was also known as the pilot maker. Like if he does your pilot episode, Hill Street Blues, whatever, that's what he's done. His resume was long and he was, I see why, uh, after he, after they chose me and, and he, he took me under his wing. I understand now um, because he was an incredible gift to create chemistry and have people work together and find the character. Um, but I went in there, read it, there was just three people in the room um, those two and somebody on the camera, I did it. He goes, okay, thanks, bye. That was it. A couple weeks go by, I thought, okay, that didn't happen. Um, it'll be something else. And somebody said at a party, somebody was a casting associate for something, and said to my buddy, hey, they really like your pal for that Superman thing. And I was like, what? Because I'd already forgotten it. And uh, then it turned out that they had been going through all the rest of their auditions. I was at the very beginning, and they decided that it was myself and a few others, so they came back and would have chemistry reads. They'd have you and another Lois Lane and a this and that. So we were doing that, but I never was able to work with Terry Hatcher. I saw her along the way. And then the audition process went through and finally went to network and they brought two Supermen into network. I mean, I was terrified because it's it's very intimidating process. Um, you go in front of these people, you see all the other people, you know, the other guy who was there, there was the other Superman was Kevin Sorbo. Um, oh. And I had known Kevin too, and he's blonde. I was like, he's blonde. This is over. <laughs> it's over. And then um, we did the reading and stuff, and I ended up getting cast. It was wonderful. That was on a Thursday. That following Monday, they made me come back and read with 10 different Lois Lanes. And so, and the last one was Terry Hatcher. And she had been at Network, but I hadn't, they never paired us up. And her first words to me when I wanted to, to rehearse with her was, she goes, you don't like me, do you? And I was like, uh... I don't, you didn't talk to me the last time at Network. I was like, I didn't talk to anybody. I was terrified. Um, but that was, the, that was the nature of our relationship. And that's, right away she set the tone. And that's, that's funny because that's the Lois and Clark relationship and that she was the driver of it. And she was the best um, 
Lois Lane the much. The great thing was the audition process that day. It was first of all, it was in front of the network again, so I had to do it ten times in a row. I thought they're gonna see that I can't do this, and I'm out of here. They're gonna toss me. Um, and the scene was an inebriated Lois finally decides she's going to sleep with Clark, and so she. Oh, I open the door. She kisses me on the lips, and then pr proceeds to try to seduce me. And I don't let that happen because he's a you know Clark is extremely moral, and there's no way that would happen as bad as he wants to. Um, and I had to do this with 10 girls in a row. It was the greatest job ever. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Um, uh, but it was, you know, you could see how nervous each, I got more comfortable as it went on, but you could see, I could see how nervous the actresses were coming in and all that stuff. And, um, and there was just no rules. It was just, it was, it was crazy. But I would also listen to the network execs talk about them afterwards. And I just sat there and uh, finally Terry came in and we got the jobs. But the, you feel that tremendous, at the time there were three networks. ABC, CBS, and NBC, that was it. Um, the, the CW, those things didn't exist. None of those other networks did. There was no cable, there was, that was it. So you were, it was a big deal. And there were gajillions of eyes on you. And it got to the point where you think, okay, uh, we thought, okay, it's gonna be huge. And then it wasn't huge, it was okay. It was doing good, it was doing very well. But, you know, and then you, second year, and then things just start, it just out of nowhere, it kind of just, you realize that's happening, we're in it. And it, gets to a, it got to a point where you're, because you're doing so much work all the time that it, you get lost. And I remember being asleep. I'd be sleeping and I'm going, no, 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 no more pictures. I remember being in that position. It was a very odd thing, but it, I was 27 years old. I was 26 when it started, but I was 27 years old. I had played professional football. I had a great education. I was a man when that stuff happened to me. And it was almost overwhelming for me. I can't imagine what a Justin Bieber or one of those young kids when you hit that kind of fame and stardom at that young age, no wonder they all get screwed up yeah. because it's it's really a difficult thing to navigate. Uh, I can't even imagine it now with the social media and things like that. So I, I my heart goes out to those young stars and how they can keep it together is surprising yeah. to me. And and uh, I, I was fortunate enough to watch all my, my friends go through their foibles. Um, you know, Rob Lowe singing at the Oscars and doing some other things at the Democratic National Convention. Sorry, Rob, I love you. Um, um, but, you know, I, they made mistakes. Charlie made some mistakes that I would, I was like, I'm not making that mistake. I'm not doing that. And, you know, I got to see some things that they did and realize the repercussions. And, and of course, I'm out of that whole group. I'm the only one who went to college as well. So when people start asking me why our politics, and actually Rob's politics and I aren't too far apart, but uh, you know, like Sean Penn, guys like that, their politics are far apart. They go, why are your politics so far apart from these guys you grew up with? I said, well, I went to college. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm kidding though, no, we just happened to just have different views. Right. Um, but, but they're all still family. I mean, like Sean Penn is, if I saw Sean, I'd, I'd be nothing but a hug and I'd be as comfortable if he was sitting on my couch. You know, it, it's, our families were best friends. My, our parents were best friends when we were I remember out. a day when you could be friends with people who had different political views and actually I still hug one that. another. I, know, I still Isn't embrace that. Isn't that a good idea? It's a wonderful you know, idea. I was thinking about tolerance the other day. So I heard this quote, this guy named Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York, and he, he, said, he said something, because tolerance is a virtue. Tolerance is a good thing. He says, if you're intolerant of people that you think are intolerant, you're, <laughs> you're still intolerant. You're still intolerant. It's 100% correct, yes. Well, they talk about diversity of everything. Everything's diversified. We are, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, things. Diversity, it's fine, except not diversity of thought. They yeah, don't allow right. that. And that's, that's number one on the list. Yeah. Uh, so I, I value everybody's opinion. I listen to it. If I have a different opinion, I'll state that respectfully. Yeah. Uh, I don't demonize someone I, don't, I disagree with. But I say, let's have, a, let's have a rational conversation about it. And if you can convince me I'm wrong, 
I'll adopt your position. Right. I mean, it probably won't happen, but let's go, let's have the conversation. But um, but but we can have a conversation. But, but you can't just say, well, I don't agree with you, so you're canceled. Right. Well, cancel culture is a. That just is. This is it's insane. insane. It's completely insane. And I hope there's a period of time. I'm a, I studied history. I love history. I hope there's a period of time we look back at this and, see, and and are embarrassed. Right. Like we as a society are embarrassed at the idea of cancel culture because it's not a new idea. I mean, it's it's blacklisting. It's authoritarianism. It's fascism. Right. That's what it is. Right. When you're you, people don't understand when they're like you fascist this blah blah you're canceled. I'm like, do you really understand what you just said? Canceling someone is fascism. Doing that, saying that they're no longer worth because of their point of view, that's, that's literally fascism. Right. You, so it, it's, it's, it's crazy to me that, that, that these folks are out there trying to cancel folks. Because, and I, and I, listen, I've had the target on me a hundred million times. Oh, and and yeah. uh, fortunate for me, I, I'm, you know, bullets bounce off my chest. So it's a, right, uh, you're Superman, <laughs> I forgot. Yeah. As long as no one really tries that, please. Um, now fortunately for me, I have a thick skin and you, I remember at first on social media, I didn't want people to, I didn't like it when somebody said something that was counter to me. I was like, oh, I want everybody to like me. Uh, now I don't care. That ship has sailed. That ship is more than sailed. Yeah. It is motored out of the harbor, it's gone. <laughs> it's, a, it's a cigarette boat on fire. Right. Um, because uh, it's ridiculous. Now it's almost a badge of honor. Yeah. When people come after me, great. You know, it's like I, I say. I think I think the wall should be gray. Ah, oh, you were the worst Superman ever. <laughs> Don't see where that kind of comes into play, but okay. The, you know, sounds good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's the argument. So I, yeah. I figure I've already won if that's where they're yeah. going. Tolerance is important. We we need to be tolerant. Yeah, I've I've become like into tolerance all of a sudden because it, we we need to be tolerant. And that that and that I mean. Yeah, anyway, we could talk about that for an hour, but so, days. So, so trafficked real quick and I want to talk about your newest. I want to talk I can't wait to talk about Little Angels. Trafficked was a really revealing experience for you. You played a private investigator. Um, I've been learning. We've had a couple of shows with some guests about this trafficking situation, which has been eye-opening for me. And so I'm guessing doing the movie was eye-opening for you. Oh, the reality of what's going on. The numbers are just shocking, and and, and what goes on, and, and 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 the different countries involved, and how much happens here in the United States. So in the in the film traffic, I played um, a, a a private. Um, you can call him a bounty hunter in a sense. He was if you need if your child was taken. That's the guy you want. This is the guy you want to call. Right. Now he's not going to be. He's a little unscrupulous, but he's going to get the job done. He's going to find your kid. There are there are. It is so prevalent. They, you know, they know who traffickers are. Like they they're aware of who traffic, traffickers are, and they want to get the, the the kids back and out of there, out of the systems. But they don't always want to take down all the traffickers because then they won't be able to catch all the other kids and think it's a really weird. Awful thing. That's part of what made me join the police force. I work with the uh, Internet Crimes Against Children, and that's one of our task force th that we deal with. And um, it's, it's near and dear to my heart because um, being a parent, you just realize this could be your kid. Um, and it's, it's, it's terrifying. Yeah. It's terrifying, and that's not a world you want um, anybody to be in. Um, but it's, it's, I mean... Vegas, anywhere around Super Bowls or anything like that, the, the number of people, Orlando is one of the highest trafficking areas that you, and it's because people will come into Disneyland, they're business people. I mean, it's the, the, the people who are doing this stuff, it's, it's, it's shocking. 
and it's disgusting. And it, I, I, those people, if I got a chance to take them down, I won't, I won't put the cuffs on them quite as nicely, <laughs> I imagine, because I find it reprehensible. It's abhorrent, and uh, it exists. Um, it exists everywhere. In the, in the United States. For, it's important for parents to know this. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's Because it's a different world that we're living in now. Especially because they get to your, they have, there's an open door to your house. Right. Into your kid's smartphone. Into their video games. I mean, they're online. All, so I took to playing the video games with my son. So when we were in the rooms and doing things, I'm on the ears, too. I hear it all. And when I hear anything that was off and wrong, <laughs> all these kids are talking all of a sudden. I'd be like, hey, I'm his dad. <laughs> Everything, you know, things like that would happen. And, and um, it's, it's frightening because they, they really want to target your children, these predators, and they're everywhere because there's a lot of money in it. And there's a lot of, the, the numbers are staggering uh, as far as the amount of kids that are trafficked and where they're trafficked. And it's, it's and how many kids just go missing every year. It's, it's mind boggling. And I think with the way our border is right now, it's just going to get worse and worse. It's, yeah. it's, it's terrifying. Not, right. It's terrifying. Yeah, and, and I'm glad we're talking about this. I'm glad there's movies coming out about it. There's another one that we just were, were talking about. I, I believe light's the greatest disinfectant, and so Always. shining light on the problem. Um, and for parents, you know, I, we have five kids, and, and, and we're in the teenage phase, which is painful. I used to be right so often. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It's you over. That, the days, my, I'm like done. But then, you know, when they go to college, they come back and they are surprised at how smart you got. <laughs> That's it. Hey, I can't wait. You got much smarter. I'm dreaming of that. <laughs> but, 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 you know, we, we can't, coming off of, of, of looking at, you know, a movie like Trafficked and the truth, the reality, in the name of privacy, we can't put our heads in the sand because, we, we, because our kids deserve this, like, we have to be on guard, 100 for, for them, protecting, you know, and and that's something I think that is new, you know, and that that well, we well, you know, we got to give my kids. Well, I mean, yeah, you want to give your kid privacy, but you also have to protect him from these wolves. They are they are wolves. They are predators. My son, so growing up, he hated this, but but um, he respects it now. Um, I, if I try to get onto a device or on an app or something of his. And, and, and I couldn't get on his computer or couldn't get on his phone or if he changed the password or did anything. I just, I just said, give me it. Just let me look at it right now. And I'm going to go through it. And if ever there was a time where I couldn't get on something, I said, this, this device either sinks or either sinks or flies. It's going to do one or the other if, if, if I don't like it and you won't have one right. because I need to be able to look at it. And he's like, well, you know, I don't want this. Um, you know, when he just started doing some things that were wrong, he turned off like his location finder. I mean, they, the kids think like, you know, oh, I'll just turn so off the location sneaky, finder. Right? I'm like, ding, location finder's off. I'm like, what are you doing? Right. You know, it, it, you know so. It, You're not you, going to Bible study yeah. probably if you turn your location <laughs> you finder off. Not. Yeah. Uh, but it's the thing, you know, you have to, there's, there's privacy, but there is, you know, even now I have, you know, we have a, we're, we're on a thing where I can see where he is. And he can see where I am yeah, uh, for true. safety. And, you know, if you're doing something where you want to turn that off, you probably shouldn't be doing it. Right. And, and uh, the kids have to forego some of that privacy. You just don't get that. Right. Because there are, even, you know, with the pics, pictures they send, and we've had, I've had all these conversations, Internet's forever. You know, yeah. you take pictures, you do something. There was a story of a kid who killed himself not that long ago, uh, last week, where, you know, as a young uh, senior in high school, had the whole world in front of him because of some photos that sent to somebody that were going to get out there and he was being blackmailed and he, and he killed himself. That sort of stuff is, happens every day. And there are people fishing for that, looking for that, trying to get that. And I have two young, I have a young goddaughter who's 11 and a niece that are 11. And 
I have these conversations with them all the time yeah. about what goes on. I look at some of their Instagram posts or TikTok is another thing, you know, because and, and the Snapchats, the kids don't, they, they, they talk by Snapchat they snap. because it disappears, right? you know, and that sort of thing. And, and it doesn't really, though. That's what they don't get. It doesn't really disappear. It exists on a server somewhere. Huh. So all those things do. And any of the cyber security people will tell you. Um, they can get into your phones. Uh, that's why I always put a, something over my, my cameras uh, at home. They can get into your cameras. They can, all that sort of stuff. So these are our children. You need to, the children have to respect that mom and dad or either or both will have to be able to look on and see what they're doing. And, and, yeah. and if you can get that situation with your child put together, um, right. they're a lot safer. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with accountability. No. That's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. And they'll, yeah. it's one of those things. You'll appreciate it when you're older. You might right. not like it so much right now, right. but uh, I love you and that's what we're doing. Okay. So little angels. So it just makes me smile. This is fun. So, and, and, and so Dean uh, is directing, he's, he's writing, he's starring. This is the story of Jake Rogers, his division one college football coach who ends up getting a female place kicker. She misses a kick. He makes an offhanded comment that's offensive. And so he gets in trouble with the NCAA and he ends up having to coach a team of 12 year old girls. It just sounds great. This sounds great. It's a fun setup, and it's a fun situation. It reminds me of the Mighty Ducks, you know. Right. Um, uh, so Gordon Bombay getting busted, have to go coach a bunch of kids. He didn't want to do that. He's a great hockey player. Well, my character is a great football coach, but doesn't know anything about coaching girls, A, and doesn't know anything about uh, soccer. But ends up, you know, you start to spend some time with the girls. He does, and he starts to change a little bit. And then he sees the kids getting picked on, so then he wants to protect them, and he's teaching them different things. And then, then he... Then he gets all in, you know. He falls, he falls in love with the kids and their heart and their passion. And um, I, I, it's, it was a such a fun process. I enjoyed this so much. Uh, tremendous hard work, but it was really great. I'm so proud of the movie. Uh, we made a family-friendly, lovely film. You know, there, if anybody's got kids who play soccer, especially girls, there's like three movies you can watch. There's like Bend It Like Beckham, Ladybugs, and the one that Alex Morgan made. I don't know, I never saw that one, but that's about it. Um, Little Angels, because I'm an athlete and I directed the movie, you know, the soccer is very good. The girls are very good and it's like real stuff and that's something that was very important to me as an athlete. I'm, you know, I hate when they kick the ball and then they cut to the net. It's in the, you're like, I didn't make it. Um, it's much more exciting to me and hopefully to the young soccer players when they see the the how athletic these girls are and how good of athletes they are and how great these plays are. And, um, so hopefully um, this will become sort of the go-to for all the soccer. Boys, little boys, but any, anybody should love this film. It's got heart. It's got, um, it's got uh, romance. It's got a lot of comedy. I, I didn't realize it was as much of a comedy as it, as it was, as Ooh. it is. Um, and it's just a, it's one of those things that like when you say the, when you say little angels, I smile because it's that warm, fuzzy feeling. And I, and I just, I, we're finding distributors now. We're out to distributors and people are all looking at it and I don't know where it's going to end up, but I feel like when it gets out there and an audience can find it, wherever it ends up, if it's on a streaming platform, it's in the theaters, um, whatever it is, that, that the audience will find it and it will hopefully become, you know, like like the Mighty Ducks, that yeah. go-to movie for, the, for girl soccer. Yeah. That's what I hope. That's so great. For any soccer. And, and by the way, so we are... Excuse We're me. having a Damascus Road experience today. We're at Damascus Road Studios. Ryan and Heather O'Quinn are involved in the production of this. 
and Damascus Road Studios. I, I don't know how it all ties together, but I can but, tell you. Uh, tell us. Uh, so I, I I came to Ryan and Heather with the with, with this script. They went through their process at, at Damascus, and they were like, they they it got great reviews, and one, it was the highest you know rated sort of script that they had seen. They've got daughters who play soccer. They're very much involved in this world. They know it well. They, they're the ones who are like, there's nothing to watch for our girls, and, and uh, they jumped in, um, feet first. I mean, it got to the point where we finally got financed. There was a lot of confusion. This always is. It's amazing any movie ever gets done. Um, <laughs> and then um, um, it was a Thursday, and it was uh, football season. Is, it was like April, and it's not football season. But last year, because of the pandemic, um, football had gotten canceled, so they played a spring season. And I'm a police officer up in Idaho, and... Idaho State's right there, and I'm close with the with the former head coach, and um, I do a lot of things as police officers over there. My chief's really close with those guys. Um, they allowed us to shoot. They had a game. They were going to have a game on a Saturday, on that coming Saturday. It was Thursday, and I told Ryan, um, hey, you want to go shoot? We can go shoot because we had to shoot at a, a football game. Um, and I said, we got a game. Here, we can go shoot right now. We, we, we weren't supposed to start filming for another month. He's like, Okay. <laughs> so myself, Ryan, a camera guy and a, and a, and a, uh, a sound guy, all, real, all total pros, got up there, flew a guy in from Chicago, Barry Brewer, who's phenomenal in the movie, and we shot a whole bunch of uh, footage right then and there. And that's how it started. And then we, we obviously partnered up and, and Damascus, so this, this whole film is, is in association with Damascus, um, Damascus Road Productions, and Heather and Ryan have been wonderful partners and um, we got a whole bunch of other stuff to do after this, but it's been a wonderful partnership, and I love the studio they have here, and and uh, they have acts, they have more friends than any. Ryan and Heather seem to know everybody, yeah. like everyone, yeah. um, and it's wonderful, and they're and they're uh, wonderful partners in this. Yeah, these are great people. Yes, Ryan and Heather O'Quinn. If you don't know who they are, sports is is such an important thing for kids, isn't it? I think it's incredibly important because it teaches you so many life lessons. Yeah. There's always going to be somebody better, faster, stronger. Um, when you get knocked down, you better be able to get back up. Yeah. Um, hard work uh, creates success. Perseverance, uh, consistency, those are things that are going to separate you from the crowd. And, and if you don't do those things, just like in life, you know, then you won't find the success you might need. I look at all the hardest moments I ever had, like my son and his jiu-jitsu you know, that moment was right. a character building for his life. Right. He'll be in some situation in his life where he's like, I just can't get it done. He'll think, wait a minute, you know, I would five five fights that day. I was stacked up by a 32-year-old, and there was still a shot, and I did do it, so I can finish this. And yeah. that's the kind of stuff that I th- is huge in life, and that's why I, I think sports are so important. And I think it's important for kids to play a, a number of sports. Sometimes yeah. they get so right. concentrated on a single sport nowadays uh, I played everything under the sun. Even in yeah. college, I was a three sports, you know, uh, athlete. So I think it's really important to have yeah. some balance. It's hard in there. to do these days, but it's it important. is hard to do. They, they they're trying to make it too specialized, and I just don't agree with that. I got a freshman in high school who did three this year: Great. football, basketball, baseball, and he, and he was I think one of two that did that because they tried like, to get him not to. They, but back in my day, we all did that. Of course, everybody did that. Now it's like every coach is kind of. You know, Take jockeying, and, and and but we made it real clear going in. I'm like, he, he likes all three. He's played all three growing up. I, he's going to play all three, and so he can't show up in August for baseball. But sorry, you know, but it but it worked out, and he and I don't know if it'll work out for four years, but I think it's really important. It it, it probably won't work out for four years because he's going to choose. Right, he'll know where he probably feels best. It, it's it'll probably 
figure out where he fits best. I mean, I went all the way through high school at three sports. Right. But I wish we could still do that. I, we should be able to. Yeah. Uh, and there are athletes that do, even if it's two sports. I mean, you look at like Russell Wilson, the guys who get, who get you right. know, football, football and baseball, baseball right. and those couple of things. And I think it's wonderful when they have those 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 options. And and I think it's great for athletes. So any athlete, young athletes, play all sports. Do them all. Right. I'm talking to all the cameras. Sports are important. Resiliency. You're talking about your son's story. I, think about, I always think about... To, to quote the great philosopher Mike Tyson, <laughs> you know, everybody has a plan until you get hit in the mouth. Yep. That's true. <laughs> You've all of a sudden. But that, that goes to everything in life. It's true. Uh, and we say that all the time as police officers, too. You know, that's the whole thing is, you know, because there's always a plan. Even if I do a lot of you know, military tactic training, things like that. We always have a plan, and then something goes wrong immediately. It's over. And it's, it, you always have to adjust on the fly. And the more training you can do and the more preparation you can do for life and anything else, it's always going to happen. You're always going. Life will always punch you in the mouth. Yeah. So you need to have that that backbone, that determination, that perseverance, and the ability to get back up and know. Okay, all you can do is take that next step, right. and 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 you have to. Mike Tyson also said something else to quote that great philosopher. He said that um, social media has made people way too comfortable saying things uh, because they don't get punched in the face for it. <laughs> something that I, I, messed, I saw that I on your Twitter. I yeah. saw that on your Twitter. I think it's great. Yeah. People are too comfortable because the, nobody's going to punch them in the face to say that. You wouldn't say, one of the things I say on my Twitter bio is, I wouldn't tweet anything I wouldn't say to your, your face. face. Right. And I mean that. Right. So when I say something a little bit biting, my right. hackles are up a little bit. And I, and I mean, I would say that to them too. Right. But uh, people don't do that. And they say these things and uh, that anonymity. Twitter, look, Elon Musk is in there now. Maybe some things will change yeah, on Twitter. That's right. Uh, I don't like the anonymous people who can just maintain their anonymity. Uh, and say such hurtful, awful things, and then just make up a new account. I think that's there needs to be some accountability. You know, and the thing about Twitter, you know, it's such a cesspool. That's but, a great word for all, it. But if all the light, like you, you got five hundred and fifty thousand, whatever, six hundred thousand followers, if all the good people, and I'm not just talking about politically what side you're on, I'm talking about good people. If all the good people leave, then it's even more of a cesspool. I mean, it's there, there, there's kind of the, the chicken it's, or the egg. It's you know? true. I hope it. Uh, I hope it becomes a thing where you don't censor um, people. Right. Uh, unless either side. Either side. I don't think that you know. Unless you're calling for action, violence. Right. You know. I think that's uh, otherwise. The First Amendment exists so you can protect unpopular opinions. Now, I may not agree with someone's ability to to burn the flag. I may want to pull that flag out of there. But if it's protected under the First Amendment, yeah. Okay, they have that right. If right. Uh, I would rather not see the flag burn because I believe in those colors and I believe what the flag stands for. Um, and I know many, many men and women who have died right. fighting for the freedoms that we love and take for granted here in America. But I believe that you have to fight to protect even the unpopular opinions. Yes, I agree with that. So I, I've been reading about you. I've, I've, I've known of you, obviously, for a long time. But So we only have a couple minutes left. But, but here's my... You strike me as a guy that is like, you're leaving it all on the field. <laughs> that, that's how I, when I got done kind of research, I, I, this guy's all in. Like you're, is that kind of, when you think about a legacy and you start to, I, I know you're not spending a whole lot of time thinking about your legacy, probably you're too busy. I'm too young. But, and you're too young. But, <laughs> but, but, you, but, you're, but, you, but it's, you seem like the kind of guy who's just kind of leaving it all out there. You're going for it. Is that, am I reading that? 100% correctly. Uh, there's things like my mom hates that I'm a police officer and she hates that I speak up about things because she wants to protect me. I don't want you out there. People are crazy. They'll do this and you're, it's dangerous. And, and I, and I get that. 
that I take, I, I respect our men and women in law enforcement and what they do. And it's so unpopular to do that. I take, I'll, ha I'll happily stand side by side and be on the unpopular side in that sense. You know, that's not the popular stand, you know, the stance to take. Um, and I, all my values and morals, that's, they've existed in me since I was a little kid. Maybe they were, you know, given to me from my farmer dad or, or, but, but they have always existed and I'm about fairness for people. Um, yeah. I treat everybody with respect, yeah. I, irrespective of, of their, their station in life, um, or their education. I'll treat everybody fairly and give them a fair shake. But I think that that's where we should be, you yeah. know, and I, I, there's a saying, you know, I don't want to end this life, you know, and, and perfect health and you know it's like i want to come skidding in sideways with pieces falling off going woo that was a hell of a ride <laughs> right. you know i mean that's right. that's the way to do it so i fear i look at the moments in my life where i the things that i achieved the most were always the th times where i thought you know what I, I don't know if i can do this yeah i'm even directing uh, produ writing producing starring in little angels i was like i hope i can do this uh and i loved it yeah. and there was moments where i was like woo you know, hosting different shows, things. I'm like, oh boy, I'm not sure if I can do this. And then you do it and you go, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. Uh, so I look at the biggest gains and, and even getting to the NFL, it's like, oh my gosh, this is going to be hard. And then the guy ran a pattern. I was like, oh, I'm moving. I'm in. I'm already doing it. Right. This is it. I belong here. Um, like that question for me has been answered. I know I've, yeah. I, I would have, in my mind, I'd have been there for a while in yeah. the NFL. I don't have that question, but like, I wonder if I'd have made it. In my mind, I would have made it for sure. Um, but I, or I would have worked harder. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll outwork anybody if I have to. Right. Um, but that's, I think that's the... I'm guessing you'd have, you'd have, you'd have made it. I feel like it. it. I mean, just, uh, yeah. Although if, Coach if, Levy did say later, it's really tough to be a Buffalo Bill. Hell, we cut Superman. <laughs> Thank you, Coach. <laughs> that's good. That's good. <laughs> the movie's Little Angels. It's coming out soon. We don't know where, but it'll be out. Um, we will see it for sure. Um, this is a man in the arena. I love that. I was, uh, I could go on. Uh, I was telling in the car, I, I've, I'm inspired by George Washington all of a sudden. Like, I'm, I'm hearing these new George Washington. Ben Carson spoke at my old church last weekend. Ben and he Carson's was an amazing guy. He, he, he also operated on my best friend's daughter in Maryland. Oh, did he really? Uh, and, he, and he saved her life, Elizabeth, yeah. So she, he's she a just noble, graduated from he, He's a noble man. He's in the arena. Extremely. And, and, but he was telling stories about George Washington and how he get, got shot and he survived and how he, you know, it was almost like God had this hand. And I was just, I'm just, I'm just so inspired by noble men and women who are in the arena, even today, where they're, they're not afraid, and, they, they, and, and that's where you are. So I love it. And you're a dean. Yes, sir. We're yes, made sir. for each other. Yeah, Dean well, Kane. I, I, I appreciate Dean. Thank you. Thank you, brother. And absolute respect. Yeah. Much respect. Thank you. Dean Kane, everybody. How much fun was that? This is Good Life. We'll see you next time. Dean Squared. Yeah. <laughs>